he has written with us and lessons and he has shared this knowledge this area with us and he is here tonight to continue to make his great contribution and he makes it out of thorough scholarship and great enthusiasm and love for his son he's going to speak to us tonight on the chancellors of chancellorsville i'd ask you to give him a real civil war roundtable welcome Ralph. these things properly, uh, Mr. President, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and members of the Civil War Roundtable. Uh, I didn't do it right again. <laughs> well, anyhow, let's just start. Uh, you all know the Battle of Chancellorsville. You know of it. You saw it today. Uh, and what do you know of the Chancellor family? I tried to bypass any questions that came up because I didn't want to fire all of my ammunition and have nothing to say tonight. Let's say that the Battle of Chancellorsville began a good bit before May of 1863. Let's go back to quite an early date. Let's go back to March 6, 1816. George Chancellor, a Spotsylvania County innkeeper, advertised in the Virginia Herald a Fredericksburg newspaper, that he was at his new brick building, quote, large and commodious for the entertainment of travelers. Its situation is 10 miles distant from Fredericksburg and is directly in the forks of Ely's Road and the Turnpike. This was to become a prominent name in Virginia. Chancellorsville was not a town, as many people today think it was. It was simply a tavern a convenient stop for traders to the mountains and beyond the mountains, and those immigrants leaving Virginia, leaving it well with the people of the growing west. But not all went west. Eastward and westward uh, in the different seasons of the year would come the wagons, freight wagons from the mountains with apples and wheat, and the drovers of geese and cattle wrapped in long coats of a winter's morn and in clouds of dust in the heat of July. And west or east, coming and going, Mr. Jefferson's scholars from the University of Charlottesville, gentlefolks sojourning at the mountain springs, as I understand some of the richer ones still do, and politicians who lived part of the time in Washington who would come from the west and southwest, come to the new federal city along this pike, stop at Chancellorsville, jounce along in the stages to Fredericksburg and then go overland and make Potomac River connections to get by boat to Washington. So Chancellorsville enjoyed a measure of fame early in the 19th century. George Chancellor did not envisage or live to see the greater fame that was to swoop down on his crossroads in bloodshed and death. We said let's begin in 1816. The story really begins earlier than that. At Falmouth, opposite Fredericksburg, the title Rappahannock changes to Brawling Rapids. And here were turned the wheels of the mills and the factories in the 18th century. Hunter's Forge was one. Hunter's Forge made nails and pots and pans and pistols, too, for the colonists. An early artisan at Hunter's Forge was a man named Andrew Lawman, who came down from Hunter's Forge, I beg your pardon, I should have said Hunter's Forge, not Forge. Uh, came down from Baltimore, from Maryland rather, and he died in Falmouth in 1773. That's Andrew Lawman, L-O-R-M-A-N. His widow married a James Lyon, L-Y-O-N. Andrew Lawman's son, grown son William, quarreled with his stepfather and left Falmouth to seek his fortune. He found it in Baltimore, becoming in the proper fairy tale tradition a rich merchant. That sound always, that's a phrase 
you run across in the old books, I remember as a little boy, it always had such a nice fruity sound, a rich merchant. Ah, <laughs> uh, perhaps there's some in your club. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what he became. And William never forgot the infant half-sister whom he left behind, Anne Lyon. Anne Lyon grew up and married Captain Pound, Captain Richard Pound of Culpeper. And in the year 1809, they seated a plantation west of Fredericksburg and lived in a squared log structure on what was called the Old Mountain Road, and they called their place Fairview, which you saw today, one of the key points of the Battle of Chancellorsville. She was soon a widow, and she kept a tavern, or ordinary as one type of tavern was called in those days, at Fairview, in the little square log house. And then she married George Chancellor, and they continued to operate the tavern there. And then George, in 1816, opened the new large and commodious establishment, which we mentioned as the beginning here in 1816. Well, now, where did George get the money to open this big new tavern? Well, William Lawman was the angel, that is, the stepbrother of Mrs. Chancellor, the former Anne Pound, was the angel behind this production. Lawman had acquired the Pound property through satisfaction of a deed of trust in 1813 and actually owned it in the legal sense for many years. Now, there was a pocket deed, as they're called. That means it's not recorded. Of 1839, giving the 854 acres to Anne Chancellor and her children. That's after George's death. Well, that deed was actually not recorded until 1842, the year before Lawman's death. So actually, uh, we hear so much of Chancellorsville, but one of the names that we really should know, uh, the man, the money behind all this was Lawman, who is unknown to history. George Chancellor flourished along with the Orange Turnpike. Legally, by the way, the name of that is the uh, Swift Run Gap Turnpike. It was established, in, oh, I should say incorporated in 1810. Crushed stone uh, in imitation of the English turnpikes, but this crushed stone road uh, far excelled the old mountain road, but still the Piedmont clay of Virginia swallowed the stone. You know, there was no, uh, that was, the stone would be the aggregate, but there was no uh, binder, no tar to hold it together in those days. Then in the middle of the century, in the 40s, the local people fell for the plank road craze, which uh, was sweeping the country along with the canals too. And they organized what is known to the Civil War as, and we've talked so much about today, as the Orange Plank Road. But the legal name of that would be the Fredericksburg and Valley Plank Road. It was completed 40 miles to Orange in the 1850s. And by the way, I had a question today uh, about Orange. What did Orange mean? Well, that's named after the Prince of Orange, namely William of William and Mary, whom you've heard about if you've ever been to Williamsburg, and of course, you've heard about the connection college. Uh, William was a proud man in his own right. And uh, when uh, Mary Stewart, when they kicked out, I believe it was her daddy, but don't question me on that, but whichever one they kicked out in the so-called Glorious Revolution uh, in the late 1600s, uh, and they said that she and her husband could rule, uh, uh, William wasn't just having it as a consort. He said it would be William and Mary. It wasn't Mary and her son William. I mean, and her uh, husband William. So it would be uh, full uh, he'd be the king, he'd be the king and queen. Of course, that's not the case today. It's the Queen of England and the Duke of Edinburgh. Well, William of William and Mary caused lots of little places to be called Orange in Virginia after the Prince of Orange, as he was also called. Orange would be the county seat of the uh, county of Orange, which is adjacent to this one. This is Spotsylvania County here. We got questions which I answered, I believe, for the most part today about that plank road, but let's uh, mention that again in case some of you didn't hear it. Uh, the plank road would be sawn lumber, not corduroy, sawn lumber, be eight feet wide, and those planks would be two or three inches uh, thick, but they'd be sawn flat, either sawn or adged, but at any rate, they'd be flat. And eight feet covered half the road, so that meant that the loaded man had the right of way and the unloaded man had to get off into the uh, dirt park whenever a loaded man was coming. And that load, the uh, right of way, in other words, was on the 
south side of the road, that would be the right-hand side coming east, because presumably the heavier wagons from the mountains would be uh, bringing the heavier stuff to Fredericksburg. And by the way, there was quite a mountain trade and trans-mountain trade. I had uh, a lady once in the museum mention that she, they had a cherished uh, a bureau or chest of drawers, uh, which uh, the tradition was in that family came by way of Fredericksburg to Ohio. You see, Fredericksburg is the head of navigation on the Rappahannock, and the stuff would be borrowed from Philadelphia and all of the uh, places of furniture manufacture. I just mentioned furniture, but things of all kinds, finished products, and then from here would go westward uh, on the road, on the Iron Flank Road. And of course, the question also came up, and don't forget that these were toll roads, just like 95, well, not 95, but the Richmond Pike, for instance, today, and the toll roads that you have, I would say, around Chicago. They'd be pay roads. And a turnpike meant a pay road. You know, there was a pike that when the guy paid, you turned the pike around and he walked on through. That's why he rode on through. That's where the name comes from. So the uh, plank road would be a pay road, too. Fredericksburg should have put her money on railroads. The new railroads were looked down on by some people as a sort of temporary fad. And she did put her money, uh, but not, well, her effort, but not enough in what is famous in the Civil War, which we mentioned on today and will mention uh, tomorrow, the unfinished railroad of Civil War days. Well, the proper name of that was the Fredericksburg and Gordonsville Railroad. It was incorporated in 1853, but they did not push that. And incidentally, the RFP goes back to 1832 or so, one of the earliest railroads in the country. I think the B&O would be the first in 1828. But the RFP would be one of the earlier ones. So Fredericksburg has always been fine, north and south, but east and west is not so good even today. We had a flag down the bus, you know, so Dr. Smith could get to Charlottesville uh, today. Um, well, by missing out on the east-west railroad, the result was that by the time, say, of the Civil War, the uh, Richmond and Alexandria would be uh, the trading centers uh, by means of the Orange and Alexandria and the Virginia Central Railroads. And Fredericksburg's mountain trade diminished. It did not die, but it did definitely diminish from then on. But in the 1850s, uh, the hooves were still clattering down the planks and the coach horns still pissed the woodland south silence, but George Chancellor didn't hear it. He had died in 1836. Mrs. Chancellor's sons-in-law, Charters, and a man named Apla, successively ran the tavern. And then she died, and Chancellor died in 1860. And the Aplas moved to Georgia. And that ended the innkeeping of half a century, 1860, the eve of the Civil War. No more would the traveler en route to Texas praise the 50-cent dinner. And by the way, I used to get a wonderful 50-cent dinner at the old Appomattox Hotel in the 1940s. Sometimes I feel as though I went back to the Civil War. Uh, the old gentleman uh, who, uh, whose wife ran it, uh, Lord, I've even forgotten their names. But then his wife was Miss Molly, and the old man says that if he had two Miss Mollies, he wouldn't have to work at all, but he did have to work some. And he used to go out and shoot game. We ate rabbits and squirrels, and the old man had shot that day. That's almost like another world today. And no more Chancellorsville would the bar be advertised as provided with the best liquors for those who choose to use them. The taverns was no more, but the chancellors, they, they were here. The chancellors were still going strong, and they were all over the county like a quilt. And as a matter of fact, they were beginning to get all over the country. They're all over the country now. They're in California and all over the place. And one of them was Melzai Chancellor, and he was the man who lived in Old Dowdall's Tavern, which was uh, Howard's headquarters that we saw today, not the old one. You remember I pointed out that Dowdall's Tavern that we saw is, is not the old house. Uh, he was a Baptist preacher, and strangely enough, this coincidence, he had lived at a place called Hazel Grove, and you know, that's the place that we visit today, one of the key points in the Battle of Chancellorsville. At the time of the Civil War, he was living at Dowdall's. And one of you all raised a very good question. One of you said, what was meant by Chancellor? And Jackson, in his last dispatch, said that he was two miles west of Chancellor, not Chancellorsville, and was about to attack. Well, he was two miles west of Mel's Eye Chancellors. You see, so that's proved that the Confederates knew a little something at the ground. They knew that the Chancellor lived at the old Dowdalls as well as at Chancellorsville. 
So that was a chancellor place too. Dowdall's Tavern was uh, the home of this Baptist preacher. Incidentally, he was a preacher. He preached at Salem Church, for instance. The old pound connections that I mentioned were all over the place, and we think that maybe they were still living at Antique Fairview at that time. I really don't know that, but I think they were. And there were pounds and chancellors intermarried with Grady's, Bailey's, and others all over this part of the county and this part of the adjacent, uh, nearby counties, too. George Chancellor had a younger brother, Major Sanford Chancellor, who was a veteran of the War of 1812. And he married Frances Pound, the daughter of Mrs. George Chancellor, by her first husband. I think that now this Chancellor been incidentally, I'm not a genealogist. I got all this genealogy from one of my friends, George Harrison Sanford King, who is a professional genealogist of Fredericksburg and who is a descendant of the Chancellor. That's where I got my genealogy. And that means that Sanford's sister-in-law was also his mother-in-law. I always thought that was a nice, <laughs> <laughs> a nice but somewhat confusing touch. <laughs> and they lived at a place called New Store, southeast of Chancellorsville, but then by 1840, he built the nice new brick house on the Rappahannock, and he called that Forest Hall. And that is the brick house within that last V-shaped line of hookers. And you've seen Forest Hall on your maps many times, and it goes by different names on post-Civil War maps, Nicholas map, because other people were living there then. But that, too, was a Chancellor house. And that's one of the many places we did not see, but that would be the nerve center of the last phases of the Battle of Chancellorsville, and that still stands, but it's been changed a little bit. So Sanford Chancellor then lived at Forest Hall, and nearby would be the workings of the old U.S. gold mine, which flourished in the 1830s, and which is known to fame simply because it gave its name to U.S. Ford. That's the United States gold mine, and it gave its name to U.S. Ford, which played such a part in the Battle of Chancellorsville. Also near there uh, would be um, Governor Spotswood's mine. You saw the Catherine, uh, uh, Governor Spotswood's furnace, rather, I should say. You saw the Catherine furnace, but the Spotswood furnace, and I mentioned that briefly this morning, uh, would be near Sanford's place. That was called the Tubal Furnace. I mentioned just now that one of the efforts to continue west and to keep the east-west trade would be the Rappahannock Canal. I mentioned the roads and the railroads. Well, now the canal was projected as early as 1811, but it was built in the 1840s. And you run across mention of that sometimes in your Civil War studies. Maybe you all haven't run across too much, but if you run across it in the future, I might mention just what it was. The, these eastern canals meant that when you got above tide water, and the rapids at Falmouth would be tide water for the Rappahannock, it would be navigable to Fredericksburg, you tried to make it navigable further inland. That doesn't mean that it was a canal all along. It means you used the river itself. But then when you came to Rapids, you would build your locks and have your canal around the Rapids. So the canal, it's a singular name, but it would be a collection of plurals. In other words, a collection of little canals all up and down, which bypassed those uh, Rapids. Well, one of the, uh, that was one of uh, Sanford Chancellor's great dreams. He was a big backer of that canal. They thought that canal would do wonders to bring back the mountain trade. And the engineers stayed at his house engineers working on that canal. But like the Orange Plank Road, the canal venture failed too. And in 1855, Sanford and a neighbor rented it for their own use. And whatever the uh, Virginia equivalents of ivory apes and peacocks that they expected, such as Solomon traded in, uh, you remember in the Bible, whatever Virginia equivalents that they expected to travel on the canal. Actually, when it wound up in Sanford, it was just about two things. They, they got salt fish from Fredericksburg and they sent down to Tanbach, uh, Sumac, and that was about it. Well, that wasn't enough. Even he and his neighbor couldn't keep it up. So it soon went down, the lock ceased to work, and the beautiful old stonework was covered with brush and grown up in vines, and some of the most beautiful stonework that you can find is still in that today. All of that canal, is, all those locks are all still there, except in one place where it's been pretty much chewed up by a stone continent. So the realities of trade had vanished 
But Mrs. Chancellor, that's Mrs. Sanford Chancellor, had something to cherish. She had a silver service, which had been presented to her by the engineers and a family connection, namely George H.S. King, whom I just mentioned, still has that silver service. At the eve of the Civil War in 1860, Mrs. George Chancellor, as I mentioned, died. And Sanford Chancellor died that year too. 1860 then would be a sort of a prominent year to the chancellors. And that means that Mrs. Sanford Chancellor inherited Chancellorsville. So in 1861, Mrs. Sanford Chancellor was living at Chancellorsville. She had a married daughter away and a son, Dr. Charles Chancellor of Alexandria, who was to become medical director of Pickett's Division. But she was by no means bereft in that big tavern. It was a 30 rooms or so, but she had with her a young son named George Sanford Chancellor and six unmarried daughters, Mary Edwards Chancellor, Anne Elizabeth Betty Chancellor, Jane Hall Chancellor, Francis Douglas Fanny Chancellor, Penelope Abbott Abbey Chancellor, Susan Margaret Sue Chancellor. Then came the Battle of Fredericksburg. As time passed, you know, and you know what Fredericksburg, what happened to the town that was inhabitable for months and really several years later. So after the Battle of Fredericksburg late in 1862, Mrs. Chancellor not only had all those whom I just mentioned, but she had a bunch of uh, people from Fredericksburg refugeeing there too. Then she had Confederates. Because after the Battle of Fredericksburg, Lee had his troops up and down the river here for a distance of some 20 miles. From Port Royal down river to above U.S. Ford upriver. And U.S. Ford was heavily, organized, heavily uh, uh, fortified and so was uh, Banks's Ford. So that means that the people guarding those fords were always in and out of Chancellorsville. The logistics of travel had made Chancellorsville an early landmark, and now the tactical military situation turned it into a military liaison point. It was a thrilling time for the girls. Even 14-year-old Sue had her share of attention. Uh, the soldiers were always hanging around, and one day a drover came past with a flock of sheep, and Thomas Lamar Stark of South Carolina bought her a white lamb, and she promptly named it Lamar, and everywhere that Sue went, uh, Lamar, the lamb, was sure to go. There was no snobbery. Men of all ranks came and went, and the soldier boys vied for the honor of writing in the girls' memory books or token albums, and two of those are excellent. Uh, and my friend George H.S. King has those, by the way, very charming little books with it writing all still in them. And when I said there was no snobbery, there wasn't any reverse snobbery either. The generals weren't going to allow all these privates to keep them away from there, and they hung around too. And uh, many of the famous names that I noticed that some boy in the bus had a picture of Colonel Posey. I don't know whether he was his particular hero. Well, black-bearded Colonel Posey of Mississippi came often. And divisional commanders, Anderson McLaws came, and also high-voiced little Billy Mahone of Virginia. You all know Billy Mahone. And Mahone and Posey were guarding U.S. Ford, which was nearby. Um, many years later, Miss Sue reminisced and said, General Mahone was a little man, but he was a big little man and just as brave and gallant as he could be. It was such a pity he became a Republican after the war. <laughs> Stuart came jingling in, too. He was so nice and always had a pleasant word for everyone. That's Miss Sue again. And after a hard winter, the spring of 1863 came in. I would say maybe something like this one we've had this year. Very, very beautiful spring. It came in full and green and fast. And some of the soldiers went fishing and others turned to poetry. Still attached to Abbey Chancellor's souvenir album, are two pieces of paper, and one is a note. 
Miss Abby Chancellor will please accept with the enclosed the compliments of her stranger friend, Carrie D. Bat, Sergeant Company E, 12th Virginia Regiment, U.S. Board, April 21, 63. The enclosure reads, to Miss Abby the Violet. Up from a little bed of earth, in wild, luxuriant, fragrant sprang a little flower whose modest worth in praise the poet's tongue hath sang. There in its emerald bower it grew, and to the gale its perfume shed, steeped in the bright and sparkling dew that bathed with gems its leafy bed. One morn to catch the coming light and drink the early falling dew, this little gem so fearless white changed color to ethereal blue. Tis also said that beauty's power once gazed upon this modest flower, and from those eyes so heavenly true, stained the little violet blue. April 21st, 1863, U.S. Ford, C.D.B. High-ranking men were indicting less affectionate dispatches about that time, about where movements would go and how many rations would be taken, all that sort of thing. And everybody was getting restless. Not only the military men were getting restless, so old Mr. Mary Forbes was getting restless. Mr. Forbes and his wife Sally and two daughters were among the refugees at Fredericksburg. And uh, on April 29th, uh, he uh, worried about business at Fredericksburg and decided to drive in and hitch, hitch up that carriage and get the driver to go on into Fredericksburg to see about this business which had been lapsing. And he settled with his wife and a married daughter, and that married daughter was Mrs. John R. Taylor of Fall Hill, which is the name that the state has always had, but you know it as Taylor's Hill which would be the left anchor of the Confederate line of the Battle of Fredericksburg. And they left one daughter there, Miss Kate and her mammy, Aunt Nancy, and a basket of valuable securities. That same day, that's April 29, 1863, the Dutch brought word that the enemy was appearing at Germana and Ely's Fords. To avoid being taken in rear, Mahone and Posey left U.S. Ford and placed most of their troops near Chancellorsville. You remember I showed you on that map earlier in the tour today that U.S. Ford could have held her off indefinitely from the front, but when they crossed in behind them, Mahone and Posey had to fall back. Mahone had a room near Chan had a room at Chancellorsville, and Stuart and Anderson joined them there, and then the generals conferred. It was an air of quiet restraint that night as the girls served supper. Stuart soon left, but before leaving, he said it was always his custom to feed the waitress, and he gave Fanny a gold dollar. And that gold dollar is in the Chancellorsville Visitor Center, and you remember on the stage of Chancellorsville today, I told all of you to be showing, look at the Chancellorsville uh, exhibit, so I hope you did, you saw that gold dollar. Anderson decided to fall back and establish a new line east of Chancellorsville and await Lee's pressure. So it had been, um, what do they call it in the government today, agonizing uh, reappraisal. And um, I don't know what they do when they agonize and reappraise, whether well, they probably have another martini now, but uh, after Anderson made his decision, he's made his decision and read a chapter in the big Bible in his chamber, pulled off his boots and went off to sleep just like that at Chancellorsville. And the next morning he fell back, skirmishing with the Federal Cavalry on the way. That next day would be April 30th, and by noon of April 30th, the Federals were pouring into the Chancellorsville clearing. Hooker in person came by way of U.S. Ford, and he got there a little later that same day. He took up headquarters in the Chancellor House, and you might say that he would be the first unwelcome guest of record in that hospitable haven. Counting neighbors, there were 16 women and children in residence. Hooker relegated them to a back room, and Sue even managed to get Lamar into the house with her. But she said later, we never sat down to a meal again in that house, but they brought us food in our room. On May 1, as we saw today, Hooker pushed eastward leisurely and then ordered his troops back when he met opposition. On the turnpike, Sykes's regulars, old pros, moved out well and fell back stubbornly. Among the casualties was Sergeant Carey D. Bat, 
Company E, the Petersburg Rifleman of Mahone's old regiment, the 12th Virginia. A couple of miles away, Abby Chancellor was unaware of this. And she learned about it months later and noted in her book in the page beside his poem that his last words she had been told were, tell my mother I was facing the enemy and trying to do my duty. That has a very Victorian ring somehow to me. It uh, might sound a little corny today, but uh, it's really very sad to think of that youngster who never again wrote another poem about violence or anything else. <clears throat> At Chancellorsville, as Lee moved on up to within a mile and a half of Chancellorsville and dug in, and Hooker dug in around Chancellorsville on a long defensive line, which we noted today on the various maps on the field. And the next day, Lee sent Jackson on a flank march to approach Hooker's right, and we, of course, took that march, as you know. And meanwhile, Lee, and this question came up today, and I answered it on my bus. Uh, somebody asked, you know, what was Lee doing? Well, Lee was making a big noise. That's what he was doing. He was fighting furiously, not doing anything, but attracting all the attention that he could to hold the attention of Hooker while Jackson made the flank march. And when I say Lee, I mean Lee, the uh, combat commander. I mentioned today Lee was in a peculiar position. He was not only the overall commander, but he was acting as the uh, commander of Longstreet's two divisions, Anderson and McLaws, and you remember the two of Longstreet's divisions were absent, which is really very bad because they been here it might have been a greater victory or, or a bigger show. So Lee then was making a big noise to favor Jackson while Jackson made his move. So that big noise, of course, made Chancellorsville, the people in Chancellorsville, hear what was going on more and more, and huddled in the Chancellor house, the civilian captives heard the thunder of the guns grow and the cannon grow louder and louder, and the house was now a hospital as well as the general headquarters. And a trickle of wounded soon developed into a stream which came flowing in. Every room in the house was needed, so they then took the captives and put them in the cellar. And passing through the corridors, they saw horror everywhere. In the sitting room, lately the haunt of bowls, the grand piano served for an operating table. Arms and dismembered legs piled up faster than the orderlies could pitch them out the windows. And Miss Sue said when she was in her 90s that she would never forget the screams of those wounded. Miserably in the chill, dank cellar, the refugees stood shoe-top deep in water, praying and pondering their fate. An army surgeon who remembered his oath uh, managed to bring bring down some stimulants and so on. He brought down a bottle of whiskey and said everybody must take a dram. And everybody did except Aunt Nancy, but she was confident it was poison and she refused it. And some of the Federals even remembered to bring down food. But generally speaking, these civilians were sort of ignored and uh, were in a very miserable condition, uh, feeling that uh, they were in tremendous danger and yet not knowing what that danger was and completely unable to cope with whatever situation might arise. Outside this dank cellar, the spring day grew hot. Jackson marched all day as we saw on our tour today. And on the evening of the day, the 2nd of May, he struck the 11th Corps, flushed Howard out from his nap at Dowdall's Tavern, Mills I Chancellor's place, and drove the 11th Corps en route eastward. The road of the 11th Corps brought frenzy to Chancellorsville. All of you remember the story. Hooker was on the porch enjoying the summer evening, and somebody looked down the road and said, My God, here they come, and there was no peace from then on. All night, the women and children shivered and wondered about the rushing to and fro above them. They could hear all of the rushing around. And on Sunday, May 3rd, ushered in a day of slaughter, which they realized was such, but they didn't know what or when or where it was happening, but they knew that something was happening more and more as time went on. And as we saw today at Fairview, the old pound chancellor seat became a key point in federal defense. And by mid-morning it fell, many a brave man along with it. And then from Fairview, Lee's cannon bombarded Chancellorsville itself. And you remember Hooker himself was wounded. The whole area around Chancellorsville became untenable and they had to fall back. Smoke billowed across the fields of spring, the black powder haze, the brownish pall over the doomed mansion itself, and the 
blue wood smoke of a forest set ablaze by musketry. Many of the wounded desperately tried to crawl away. Many were burned alive, many suffocated. Riderless horses plunged through the gloom, startling everybody. And some of the troops were attempting to fight. Others were running. It was a scene of chaos. Then came the scream of the rebel yell, the infantry from the west, the south, and the east. Anderson, McLaws, and Stewart had all joined at Fairview and were pushing on. It was time to leave the tavern. Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Dickinson, Assistant Adjutant General on Hooker's staff, thought of the civilians. And he shepherded them all, except Paul Lamar, nobody knows what became of him, the white lamb, out of the crumbling house and through the melee toward the federal rear. He felt, Dickinson felt he had the obligation, he couldn't leave them. Of course, you might say their own friends were taking it, but what would happen to him while all this was going on? Uh, the women retained a few trinkets and family valuables, including the canal silver tea service that I mentioned, hidden in the voluminous maxi skirts of the 1860s, and one wonders what they could save with the miniskirts of today. <laughs> when a soldier snatched Mrs. Mr. Forbes's basket of valuables from Aunt Nancy, a passing officer rescued it and gave it to Miss Kate, and she hung on to that. Picking their way through the dead and wounded, the civilians looked back on Chancellorsville, burning and falling, a haven of local hospitality sacrificed to national dissension. They were a small and frightened part of a major retreat. They felt that every step would be their last. One of the girls was tubercular and had a hemorrhage. Kate Forbes fell exhausted and said she couldn't go another step, but she had to. Dickinson ignored the remark of a fellow officer whom he met who said that why wasn't he at his post of duty and he said that his post of duty was not saving these civilians. He didn't know what it was, which was quite right. I mean, uh, he may have been the assistant adjutant general, but right then he couldn't have done anything. So he stayed with them and got them safely to the old Fox Place, La Roque, which was a mansion overlooking the Tubal Furnace site. And they all sank down exhausted on the porch. In other words, they're back safe behind the lines now. And of course, the Federals are digging in on that new line that we saw today, and they're behind that. And they were safe, but they weren't very much reassured because one of the first things they saw was the corpse of an old colored woman uh, on the porch. And one of the people in the house said she'd been frightened to death by everything that was going on. Uh, Dickinson turned the party over to a New Jersey chaplain, and the few soldiers who were around the rear guard people uh, did the best they could, and a little drummer boy got ice and lemons, and they sent for an ambulance to take them across U.S. Ford. So while they were waiting for the ambulance, the party sat around on the grass sucking lemons. And I've always thought of that picture to be like a fake champetre, but a fake champetre in very grisly circumstances. Uh, you think of, uh, say, uh, the 19th century Renoir picture, going back to the 18th century, a Boucher picture, you know, the little set piece in which they all almost sitting around having the picnic. <laughs> you can just imagine having this picnic in the midst of the confusion and bloodshed, all sitting around sucking lemons and drinking water with ice in it. Uh, the ambulance soon came, and the sick girl and Kate Forbes and the little boy were put in the ambulance and the rest of them continued to walk. They went across U.S. Ford on the pontoons over to the Eagle Gold Mine across the river to the home of Mr. John Hunt, who was the head of the Eagle Gold Mine. We mentioned those, I think I mentioned those gold mines briefly today, and I mentioned U.S. just now. Uh, the gold had more or less given out years before. Of course, the California strike uh, put all this eastern gold to shame, and it was just more or less surface stuff anyhow. But they, uh, the gold mines still had their identity, although they weren't doing anything or making anything. But of course, if the gold keeps up, maybe we'll uh, reopen them. <laughs> As the campaign ended, uh, Forest Hall, that other chancellor house that I mentioned, was damaged but not destroyed. And finally, all the hookers force crossed over the river. We remember we touched on that today. They retreated over U.S. Ford on the night of the 5th and early morning of the 6th of May, and Richmond again was safe, and once more the Confederates chalked up a great victory, however much it might be a paper victory as much as anything else. 
Well, the Chancellorsville party remained at the Eagle Gold Mine for several weeks. The girls, uh, and by that time, of course, you remember, uh, don't get the idea that all the Union Army is there. The Union Army has then dispersed to its camps, and of course the Confederate Army has dispersed to its camps. Uh, so U.S. Ford would then be just a small garrison again. At first, the girls were cool to the Yankee boys, but they finally thawed and began to play cards with them and sang for them. And after a suitable time, when Hooker felt that everything had quieted down and also any information that they had would no longer be valuable, uh, the party was released and they all went out separate ways with relatives and so on. And of course, not back to Chancellorsville, which was only a burning, a burned earth hulk. Uh, Kate Falls went to Philadelphia, you might be interested in knowing. That sounds strange. Her brother was a doctor in Philadelphia, and she taught medicine there. And incidentally, that Jefferson Medical College at Philadelphia was uh, a place that many Virginians went to. And uh, he taught there, and there was a bit, a good bit of uh, business and social communication between Philadelphia and Fredericksburg, and a lot of Philadelphians were mixed up in the R&P Railroad, still are. And um, there was no enmity between those people, so it's, it's really not too strange that she went to Philadelphia. Uh, she retained the basket, by the way. And Dickinson was soft on her, and it'd be awfully nice to say they got married, you know, just like one of the 1900 stories about the Civil War, but uh, she didn't marry Dickinson. Uh, she married a Virginian a farmer named Bastable. It sounds like something out of Dickens. He probably was a big red-faced farmer who raised uh, cattle or something in 1871. Now, what became of old man Forbes who went eastward in his buggy? Well, he ran right smack into the Battle of Fredericksburg, the second Battle of Fredericksburg, you remember, which was a phase of the Chancellorsville campaign, and he was so shaken by those experiences that he declined and died in July. But if he remained at Chancellorsville and had been in the fire and had the refugee, that would have been equally bad, I suppose. That fall, Mrs. Chancellor took her family to Charlottesville, and she had a half-brother, and that would mean he'd also be some other kin to it, too, but don't let's go into that. That would just confuse me. <laughs> uh, a half-brother, Dr. Charles Edgar Chancellor, who, was, who taught medicine at the University of Virginia. And uh, the university, of course, would be a medical center then as now, so there were several hospitals. I think not just one, but several uh, base hospitals at Charlottesville. And she got a job there as a matron, and uh, the girls, several of the girls got helped in the hospitals and got jobs as teachers, and Sue, uh, four, she was 14, was put to school. And they settled down to somewhat of a quiet life again, and the Swains still wrote in the gir girls' memory books, and one example would be, to Miss Fanny, may angels guard thee while thou sleep, and when thou art awake, May nothing cause the ear to weep for an anxious soldier's sake. And another one was, uh, Dear Miss Fanny, ever since that fatal and auspicious moment when first I was introduced into thy endearing presence, my heart has been riveted unto thee as the only idol of my affection, yours until death, W.H.B., whoever he was. In Abby's book for June 25, 1864, there is a simple signature, William W.M. period, T. Pogue, A-M-V-A. Pogue was then on leave, and you might remember, and if you don't, I'll surely tell you tomorrow, that he is the man who saved the Army of Northern Virginia in the wilderness on May 6, 1864, which would be just a few weeks before this little writing in the memory book at Charlottesville. It was his guns that saved Lee just until Longstreet could come up on the 6th of May, 1864. Abby and Fanny contracted typhoid and died within a week of each other in August, 1864. So the angels at any rate did not keep her, at least on this earth. They died within a week and they're buried together in the University of Virginia Cemetery under one stone in Dr. Charles Edgar Chancellor's lot at Charlottesville University Cemetery. But one does feel sure that the angels are guarding that sleep.
Chancellor scattered all over the country after the war. Lawman's wealth stuck to them. They lost this house, this magnificent house here, but Lawman, the Lawman money stuck to some at any rate. Uh, and they also had a number of more or less acute dealers amongst them. In other words, they knew how to take care of what they had and make more with it. The house itself, the Chancellor House, Chancellor Zill, the fall of which somewhat symbolizes the end of a period, I don't think we should overplay that, um, was rebuilt, but it was rebuilt smaller. And that smaller addition burned in 1927 and the walls fell down in a high wind in 1947. And there's no evidence above ground today. And as the cars speed past on Virginia 3, eastward and westward, uh, they see nothing but the sign, which most of them don't stop to read. Incidentally, the sign doesn't say that was the house. It just tells you about the battle. It's one of the state markers. The chancellor's surname itself is gone hereabouts. But chancellor is the name of this magisterial district, the magisterial district of the county. We have several magisterial districts in Pasadena County, and this is the chancellor district. This motel, you see, is not Fredericksburg. It's in the chancellor district of Pasadena County. The Chancellor School, which we passed today. And then there was a little post office hamlet called Chancellor, which is still a hamlet, but the post office itself has been abolished in the interest of economy, and that would be an RFD Fredericksburg number today. For many years, there were two locally famous businesses, Chancellor's Farm Implement and Hardware Company, and if I remember correctly, that would be the little boy in the house, young Sanford Chancellor. Uh, who founded that company. Uh, that unhappily is gone. I used to get a historian's discount there on saws and things like that, so I missed that. Uh, but Chancellor's Drugstore in Charlottesville, long may it furnish, flourish, has administered sodas and bromides of a Sunday morning to generations of university men. And, of course, I like to think that we now have the Chancellorsville Visitor Center of the National Park Service, which will become more and more of a landmark as time goes on. Um, what about Hooker? Did he ever come back here? We've mentioned the chancellors and what happened to them after the war and how they spread out and so on. Well, Hooker returned to Chancellorsville in 1876. Major George Edwards Chancellor, who was a son of Reverend Melzai Chancellor, showed him around the battlefield. He met him in Fredericksburg, and uh, Hooker wanted to go to all the grocery stores and buy a lot of stuff. And uh, Major Chancellor said, what do you want to do that for? And uh, Hooker said, the last time I was up there, uh, it, it was a little scarce. And when we ran out of our own rations, it got pretty hard. Well, the Major told him not to worry. They had plenty to eat, and they had lunch at Mel's Eyes. Now, that's not Dowdall. Somebody was asking me today, Dowdall's burned in 1869, so Mel's Eyes' new house was across the road. It's not standing now. So they had lunch at Mel's Eyes. It was a bountiful lunch, and Hooker did not starve on that second trip. Hooker had a good time on that trip. A man named Bates was with him, his military executor, who wrote the life of Hooker, and Hooker pointed at all these things, what he really meant to do. You know, he didn't do them, but uh, he would. <laughs> Well, no. And I imagine Major Chancellor being an old Virginia gentleman uh, um, kept a straight face through it at all. Uh, I'm sure the repast that they had was a good one because it said that Melzai Chancellor, you see, they weren't poor, so even though he was a Baptist preacher and didn't get much money from Salem Church, he probably lived very well. And he's, he not only lived well, but I understand like many Baptist preachers, he knew which ones to eat with, you know. <laughs> and... Um, <coughs> He was very fond of good food. And presumably, as a good Baptist, he did not drink, but he was very fond of branded peaches. And I understand from some of the old people that he was very fond of branded peaches, especially the sass. Uh, and that, by the way, is the old English and old Virginia pronunciation of sauce, as you probably know. Uh, you know, um, it's fashionable to some people to think that broad A is very fashionable, but, but the right people in the old days used the flat A. You know, they, they say that the Bostonians used the broad A because all the real, the, the really fancy people left Boston and went to Bermuda, you know. Uh, and um, in Virginia, they began using the broad A in the 1900s because they were aping the English, but the antique English is the flat A. So if you hear some 
monkey on TV imitating George Washington and sounding like a phony Oxford English accent. That ain't right. George used the flat A. Uh, and it wasn't a gaunt, it wasn't a gaunt horse. It would be a gant horse, you see. Uh, so it would be the sass that he was fond of. Uh, I mean, Mel's out of it. <laughs> now, that was 1876. Um, that same year, the Chancellor family again repaid Hooker with kindness for what he'd done to him. Uh, a family group of Chancellor was on their way to the famous American Independence Centennial at Philadelphia. You know, that was the first of all of the centennials we had so many of. They beat you all to it by about 75 years or so in having a centennial. Uh, well, yours is a Susquehanna centennial. That would be a centennial. Of course, Philadelphia later on had a Susquehanna centennial too, but this 1876 deal was a real big deal. All the countrymen for miles around got on the train and went up there. And they met Hooker on the train. And they had a bountiful box lunch, and they shared that lunch with him. Uh, five egg sandwiches, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 in a shoebox, maybe, I don't know. Uh, several shoeboxes, if it was bountiful. Uh, Dickinson continued to be a great friend of the Chancellor's. He came down here often. Many of these old boys would come down and go over the battlefield. He visited the family every time he came here, and he kept up a correspondence, an affectionate correspondence with them. And when uh, Mrs. Sanford Chancellor died in 1892, that would be right long afterwards, she lived to be an old woman, he came down to her funeral. In 1893, Sue married her older cousin, Vespasian Chancellor, the eldest son of the Reverend Melzai. Uh, boy, I mean, it's just shot through with it. I mean, this is just some of it. Huh? <laughs> and Miss Sue was an old Virginia gentlewoman. Uh, Beth was one of these rakes, you know, who then married later. And Um, this is pictures in, since you all have heard this, it'll mean a little bit more to you, but when you get home, look in your photographic history of the Civil War, he's in the index, and you'll find Vespasian Chancellor with long handlebar mustaches, and he was one of Stuart's skirts. Now, all of you all know not only about the Civil War, but about what might be called the Renaissance of the Civil War. Um, I'm being British now, I mean, Renaissance, if you want to call it that. <laughs> uh, and we think that Gone with the Wind was the beginning of the Renaissance Civil War, but that's not true. Um, the Renaissance began tentatively a little earlier, and a very fine book, which I think in many ways is much better than Gone with the Wind, Stark Young, So Read the Rose. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yeah. But there was a popular writer, Robert W. Chambers, who began mining that vein way back. And he wrote a book called Operator 13, which is a lot of malarkey about spies, and he had a lot of stuff about deaths in that. And that was widely read. And I can't find a copy in town now. It's the library anywhere. And I remember Miss Sue used to tell me, she says, you know, Ralph says, all that stuff about deaths in that book, that ain't true. Um, but this may have been a spy of some note because, of course, that the spy business, you can never know what's true. The better the spy they were, the less you know what they actually uh, did. So he was probably a fairly valuable skirt. Uh, she had lived him for years, and she died in 1935, and she is buried in the family cemetery at Fairview, right behind all of the uh, bulldozers that you saw, you know, at Fairview there today when we passed by. The cemetery is still there, and of course they can't violate that cemetery because that, in Virginia law, belongs to the dead. And George King keeps it up. Uh, I don't know about the man with the bulldozer, but the man just before him had police dogs, and George couldn't go to look at the cemetery, which was kind of bad. Uh, <laughs> but um, as long as he's around, that cemetery will be there. But there again, I'm afraid, a hundred years from now, who knows that that cemetery will, st will still be there. See, that would be on the old, the first property, the pound property, and Miss Sue would be the last one to be buried there. Uh, she lived in Fredericksburg for many, many years, and to the people of Fredericksburg, she was a gracious and pleasant gentlewoman, alert and 
interested in current affairs even in extreme old age, but a part of her remained a girl, forever treading a path of death and looking back on a burning house. I know that all the rest of you Yankee lovers here tonight uh, joined me in, in a great sense of relief when Ralph a couple of times mentioned things that happened in 1870, 1880, and 1890. Some of us, Ralph, much as we loved you, had begun to suspect that you weren't going to give any recognition or equal time to anything that happened after 63. <laughs> uh, I. Uh, I don't think what you've said is very controversial, and I don't imagine that we will have a very active debate on the basis of what you said, because we want to keep this thing clean. Uh, but I, I, Don, I'll get to you, but I, I want to finish my questions first. My first question, uh, you could just correct me here by one word. Uh, you were talking about how they pitched the arms and the legs out of the window, and Miss Sue made some kind of a comment about that. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, you said she made this comment when she was in her 90s or in her 90s, which I, I just didn't. Uh, <laughs> 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 Better Miss you're talking, that You're talking about a Virginia gentlewoman, and the question does not I, I, I understand. need answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a proper question. Probably she was in her 90s and her 90s. <laughs> this now, I do want to say this to you. I, I honestly think that uh, uh, I, I ought to be a little careful about this in the presence of Bill Holloman, who I understand is your supervisor. And we don't want to be in a position of stealing good personnel. But I, I know that many of us have had the feeling that this man, if he only had a good battle, you know, a good battle, uh, he could really do an absolutely tremendous job. <laughs> and and <laughs> here he is strapped with, <laughs> with, <laughs> with these Confederate victories. <laughs> now, I'm sure you also know that <laughs> in, the, in the war, <laughs> in the war that in general, the Democrats were affiliated and associated with the cause of the, of, of the Confederacy and the Republicans were generally associated with the cause of the North. Now, it just happens that our round table is quite influential in the Republican group, and therefore in the cause of the North. And so I have been, I haven't made a, a clear-cut decision on this, but I'm considering the appointment of a committee of, of influential people, perhaps to go into action after the next election of uh, Jaime Bass and Lloyd Miller and Don Burhans to get you a good battle, like say Gettysburg or Vicksburg. I'd like to see <laughs> Anyway, we, we've had a great deal of fun. And isn't it a refreshing and wonderful experience to, to, to watch the war and, and the the, the people who were associated with the war come alive through the scholarship of a man like this. Isn't it really? Uh, Don, perhaps you'll forgive me. I, I really don't think this is a, a particularly good night for questions and debate. I, I would like to make one announcement. I'd like to call your attention to the fact that this is perhaps the biggest roundtable tour group we've ever had of 99 people. We ever had a bigger one? Uh, uh, we have had one. It, it's big though, and 99 is a lot, and we have two of the largest pieces of equipment that the great Greyhound people can give us, but we still only have bus space for 86 people. Now, we know that some of you people have private cars, and, and you have 
car transportation for some other. It just gets down to this simple thing. In order to give everybody a ride and to take them to the tour, uh, please, you people who have cars, fill them up, will you? We need car transportation for 13 people every time we go out with our two buses, and that means tomorrow. So any of you people who have private cars are following the buses or going with the buses, will you please uh, tell Margaret about it, and Margaret will make some arrangements, or tell Jerry Warshaw about it. I think that would be uh, the neighborly warm thing to do. Uh, I think we will just thank our speaker again and call this an evening. Good night.